Welcome back to a brand new episode of Sustainably Influenced with me, Charlotte Williams. And me, Bianca Foley. This season is all about the people behind the product. In a society where everything has become so disposable and waste is one of the biggest problems affecting our society, we wanted to go back to a time where what you owned was treasured. Come with us on a journey this season where we chat with experts who are taking us back to a time where craftsmanship and ethical consumption were key, but making it suitable for today's modern society. Welcome back to another episode of Sustainably Influenced. This week is a Bianca episode and we are talking about, drumroll please, beekeeping. <laughs> Not what anybody thought this was going to no. be about at all. We wanted to make this season a bit different, so beekeeping is being included. More specifically, we're going to be talking about the sustainability of honey production, as opposed to beekeeping, but it all goes in like part and parcel. Honey is a animal product, mm-hmm. animal-made product, I should say. I feel like we're really coming for the vegans this season, and it's unintentional. But it's all stuff that I think... I think that they're all really interesting topics to speak about because there are questions around the ethics behind everything. Mm. Almost so it's nice to kind of delve away from fashion and beauty for a little bit too. Honey is one of the most sustainable foods on the planet and it's sad that one acre of rainforest is cut down every second, largely to cater to our food demands, especially sugar. Well, Um, sorry, I reacted with my face there, not with my my voice. What? Yeah. Every second. It's upsetting, isn't it? Mm. And there's so much, when you think about where stuff comes from, when us in the West, we tend to just forget that food has to be made or has to grow and be produced and be tended to, to give us this prepackaged stuff that we buy. Mm. And I think, what was it? Was it you that said it in the last season, maybe, where there are children out there that don't know that, Mm. chicken comes from an actual animal they you take these kids to a farm and they don't know what it is so in this episode we're going to be speaking a lot about beekeeping but also about some urban beekeeping Mm. and i've got a very special guest on who is emma buckley who's the founder of buckley's bees which is a very cool kind of like i learned a new word basically an apiary an apiary not an aviary an apiary is where you keep bees so they've got it's a company that produces honey for different companies and things, but they also produce their own. So she has a apiary full of different bees and things and very interesting conversation. Such an interesting job. Yeah. Like, imagine, like what do you do? Oh, I just own bees. And she's quite young. Really? I want to say maybe early 30s, like oh, wow. late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. She's grown up with it. Her dad was a beekeeper. He's done it for like 60 odd years. Really fantastic. And I had a really good chat with her actually, so... Nice. Yeah, interesting. So let's talk about sugar as well. We're going to be speaking about sugar production and how taxing that is on the environment as mm. well as the beekeeping and urban beekeeping, which is where they're growing in the city. There's a, a, a spoiler alert. It's not so good for people I didn't realise. Oh, honey? No, urban beekeeping. There's oh. a lot involved in it and it's actually quite dangerous. There's, there's little things that we should think about. But anyway... Can I interrupt and just give a random fact? Yeah, love it. I learned this recently. So, as we know, the Queen has passed away. And with that comes some really interesting traditions that have to basically have to happen to tell the world that she's passed. There was the telling of the public that the monarch had passed, and it's like a traditional thing. Something that they also have to do is tell the bees. So, when a monarch passes, 
there is someone who has to go and tell the bees that their boss, essentially, has passed away. That the queen has died. And that they'll be working for a new monarch. And then the new monarch then has to go and meet the bees. I feel a bit tearful listening to that. That's really sweet. It's lovely, yeah. I think that's really beautiful. And normally, things like that, I'd be like, oh, wow, this country, like, our traditions are so wild. Like, what? But I actually really, really enjoyed that because it really put respect behind the bees. Mm. And I know this sounds a bit like, oh, airy fairy, whatever. Where's she going with this? <laughs> but bees are so important to the world. If the bees die, we're dead, essentially. Yeah. Just having that importance on like the bees and how they kind of work in the world, I think it's quite cool. I think that's really lovely. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to talk about first, before we go into production and everything like that, mm-hmm. I want to just raise an article with you. So this isn't necessarily an article. It's from the London Beekeepers Association and it's from their kind of beekeeping section on their website. And there was just some really interesting information on here that I wanted to near enough read verbatim. (laughs) Um, Because what's the point in trying to reinvent the wheel when it's already there? So I wanted to know in my research how beehives work because I'm not going to lie. I'm a city girl, born and bred in London, don't really know anything outside of that scared of everything that flies or has multiple legs. So how do beehives work? Until 1880, European beekeepers generally kept bees in skeps, which are baskets, in which bees would build honeycomb, raise their young and store their produce, which is the honey. These are impossible to inspect in detail to check for disease, so little beekeeping was involved, except at harvest time when the bees would be driven away and the nest was destroyed. I just feel like for me, I found it really interesting because I didn't realise that when they leave the nest, oh, we're going to get rid of it, check it all for disease, oh, is it rubbish, okay, bye. And then the bees have to go and start again. But yeah, I wanted to raise that because it was interesting to me and there's some pros here for things like urban beekeeping, but there are lots of cons as well. So the article that I do have here is from nature.com. I've gone on rogue this week <laughs> we are not including anything from one of our usual no vogue business there's no, no vogue this time it's definitely all about the bees but this one is called challenging the sustainability of urban beekeeping using evidence from swiss cities okay this was published earlier this year so 2022 by joan casanella zabella assuming that it's a spanish name but yeah so or a bella let's anyway And this article is all about urban beekeeping. So it's talking about how cities are increasing, like, their commitment to being more sustainable. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we're doing this season is because we were having a discussion about what started to kind of rise during the pandemic and people going back and adopting these incredible hobbies and Mm. turning their hobbies into businesses. And something that we saw a lot of were, like, urban beekeepers popping up. Mm, And that's why we're doing an episode on beekeeping, essentially. So with urban beekeeping, what happens is essentially people use rooftops or open spaces, have the hives, and they go and tend to it and check it. What can happen is that these bees can become a little bit agitated because these people aren't trained beekeepers, Mm. which causes the insect to then become slightly aggressive. So it can be quite dangerous, and then they need to bring in beekeepers to come and help. (laughs) it's It's so funny these bees are like you're not trained you need to go on a course I'm not going to let you do your job until you know how to do your job 
So because people are trying to be a bit more sustainable, it's led to this increase in green activities in urban green spaces. And it's not just by city officials, it's by local regular residents as well. And that's where it's a little bit alarming because no background, Mm. nothing to do with beekeeping or bees. Why would you just decide... Oh, I'm going to just do some beekeeping without being trained. Bees are really dangerous. <laughs> yeah, really dangerous. As somebody who's allergic to either bees or wasps, we're not quite sure because I don't want to get stung again. <laughs> don't push them. They will <laughs> sting you. Um, there are a few points that I wanted to raise within that. So beekeeping is a particular form of livestock raising, which I didn't even realise mm, that there was a yeah. link there. And livestock are dependent on the resources provided by their owners. Beekeeping kind of represents a part of that. So firstly, this article speaks about the fact that beekeepers don't need to provide their own floral resources as honeybees move and they move around quite freely. Secondly, you have to control movements and foraging locations of honeybees, which, again, there's so much that goes into this. That's why for me, I think to myself, you shouldn't be doing these. I think it's wonderful if you can do it and Mm. you can do it safely. But if you're just there willy-nilly oh I'm gonna bash about and agitate a bee that's your business if you get stuck (laughs) Um, thirdly honeybees reproduce faster than other livestock didn't know that makes sense they're tiny they're tiny they guess they're going from pillar to post doing (laughs) their thing aren't they and fourth beekeeping might not be perceived as an exploitative activity because of the positive association between the honeybees and the pollination services so The results are kind of showing the increase in urban beekeeping in Swiss cities particularly. So over a period of time where the testings happened, it's shown that the total number of hives increased in 12 of the 14 cities where they were doing the tests. So they chose 14 cities to do these tests to increase urban beekeeping and it's increased production. And then as a result, increased flora um, production, which is lovely. So they are so necessary, as you said, to biodiversity and to our ecosystem. But yes, let's turn this around a little bit and speak about the sustainability of honey and sugar. So we've mentioned that honey is one of the most sustainable foods on the planet, but Mm -hmm. sugarcane production mainly takes place in tropical regions. The topsoil can be quite poor. The level and quality can be quite poor. It can only really sustain healthy growth for a really, really short period of time, meaning that new land has to be found. So like they're moving and using different sections of the earth and depleting the natural resources there over a period of time. So it's about the problem with sugarcane is that trees are cut down to make way for this crop. Oh. Yeah. So you have to clear the space to allow sugarcane to grow because it's quite intensive and it grows quite quickly and it's quite large and all these things. Mm. The deforestation results in loss of irreplaceable biodiversity, especially in tropical regions where species biodiversity is at its greatest. So honey on the flip side, is more sustainable because it doesn't really require you to do anything Mm. to the land. You've got flowers, bees will go there, pollinators will go there, and they'll go and they'll carry around from place to place. Yeah. For honey production, all you really need are the bees and flowers, and they thrive on untouched land. And in comparison to things where that are quite people-intensive, labour-intensive, water-intensive, honey, for me is a way more sustainable product. Yes, it is an animal byproduct. Mm. And again, it brings up that argument of 
the vegans ain't going to like it. But according to Google, vegans avoid eating honey to take a stand against bee exploitation and farming practices that are thought uh, to harm bee health, which makes sense. Okay. So if the bee industry was more ethical. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think there's a lot of mismatched ideals almost where there's an idealism within veganism that is you don't use any animal products you don't harm anything but then on the flip side there's a lot of things that are harmful to the environment in other capacities so I don't know so along with no trees needing to be cut down except for wood that is used to build homes and things like that no grass or native habitat needs to be brought up and therefore there's no soil degradation and no species are lost due to honey production compared to things like sugar production. Mm. It's a very weird industry and it's making me look at the things that I own in my cupboard in a very different way. When I was researching this, I was a bit like, oh God, this is actually quite full on. We always talk about the production of fruit, veg and then meat and dairy, but we never talk about those just general store cupboard things, which are mm. quite labour intensive and I guess harmful to the environment so yeah so it was interesting when I was doing my research I thought to myself boy if I start looking into everything in the cupboard Ooh. basically live like on air and salt air and, and dust. pepper <laughs> yeah salt. salt salt mining what's that like yeah let's not get into it but <laughs> <laughs> the land essentially can stay exactly as it is with honey production and they'll go about their regular routine they'll collect nectar and make honey which is something that I personally love. So I'm very excited to be doing this episode. This is the kind of episode that when I'm doing my research, I go into like this rabbit hole of mm. conspiracies and then I lose like two hours and I'm like, oh, I've still not done any research for the episode. I would have really appreciated if you brought some honey in though. Oh, sorry. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So honey production is vast and varied with lots of local beekeepers. It's very accessible to buy local honey, meaning that any sorts of transportation emissions are very low. However, whilst the small local independent honey industry is a sustainable option, there's always the flip side. So mass-produced options are far harsher on the environment, and I think that's where there is that element of exploitation mm. of the bees. So there are a few things to look out for when mm -hmm. you are looking to buy from an ethical, quote-unquote ethical, I should say, honey producer. So the questions to ask is, is it made using natural or conservation beekeeping methods? If it is, big tick. And some beekeepers choose to minimise their interference with the bees and only take surplus honey, mm. so which is something that we will get onto later in the episode. Is it organic? We all love a bit of organic farming. We know that there are pros and cons again to everything, but organic farming is generally better for the overall health of a bee and pollinator populations. Organic certification protects from some more harmful practices within the beekeeping industry. And finally, is it fair trade? Choosing mm. a fair trade option means that the beekeeper will get a fair price for their honey. And that, again, nice. brings into the ethics and brings into, like, the UN's SDG goals, and things like that. So quality and equity, that's what we're thinking about here. There are a couple of brands that are possibly a little bit better. I don't know if you've ever heard of any of these. Raw Health? Raw health honey. I feel like I've seen it in Holland and Barrett. Raw health? Yeah. Are they the ones that do cereal? No, I it's rude health. That's what I was thinking of, no. You're right. Hilltop honey. 
I've oh, also, yeah. yeah I've I've seen, had, I think I've got it in my cupboard, actually. Yeah, so that's a good one. Ones to avoid are basically honeys made by the big four supermarkets, interestingly. That's interesting. So yeah. don't buy store branded Yeah, and the reasons behind that would be carbon emissions and air miles. So is it then imported over here? So has it got a huge carbon like footprint? Are the bees harmed in the beekeeping process, which you would really hope wasn't the case anywhere? Yeah. But it does happen. Some conventional beekeeping methods are harmful to bees and avoid honey produced on an industrial scale. So if you can, obviously, avoid it. But... As I think we've come to say so many times, like sometimes necessity. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, everything's to do with money. Yeah. And the cost of living is going up quite heavily and so is food prices. Mm. And there's going to be kind of no escape. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with ethically sourced foods, organic food, foods that is generally labelled as sustainable or better. And whether it will become completely unaffordable mm. for the general working person. Yeah, it's true. It's really sad to think about. It's very sad to think about, really. I'm going to just take it back to what we were saying, Sorry. because it can make you feel really down, this conversation, when yeah. you think about things. And we're trying not to do that here on the let's podcast. Bring it back so up. Let's bring it back up. But then I'm going to say one of the things to look out for with non-ethical traditional honey production is are they enabling farm practices which are harmful to bees? Mm. So many companies selling honey also sell other foods. And if it's grown with pesticides, you could be supporting a system that is actually quite harmful to the bee population. So these are things to look out for. Um, maybe we could do like a little infographic on this mm. to put on our socials, which would be good, and to help our audience to learn how to ethically source their honey. So let's take it to the actual people involved in honey production the bees because <laughs> they are the people behind the product essentially yeah. but not people as in people people as in the workers that's what i'm gonna say i'm gonna call them the workers behind the product so there was a study that was published in the annual review of entomology talking about bumblebee populations and oh, it's really sad they're declining due to increasing quantities of farmed honeybees because they now need to compete with each other for nectar there's competition within the colonies. It's mad. It's just, it's really little strange. Bee gangs. I know. <laughs> no. There's little bee gangs, like, did you say? The mum, mummy bee's like, oh, careful, you know, going out to work today because the urban bees, <laughs> they're going to get they're you. out there. And that's only over the past 60 years, you know, that decline. That's mm. quite recent history. And it just goes to show, I think most of the bad stuff that's happened or the things that we're experiencing in this generation have pretty much happened over the past 60 to 70 years. Yeah, <laughs> Well, the past 60 to 70 years has been where production has sort of just skyrocketed, hasn't it? And consumption yeah. post-World War II, we've just went nuts. The, the nylon era. <laughs> yeah, we're blaming, what are they? The boomers, we're blaming all the boomers. <laughs> I'm blaming them for everything. Yeah, sorry, mum and dad. It's yeah, so the reason why declining bee populations is so detrimental is because there's like a delicate balance in the ecosystem and as wild bees are responsible for pollinating plants and helping fruits to grow and all these other things because imagine it's not just nectar that carrying mm. it'll be some pollen too sometimes so there's like trace yeah there's me i'm doing all the movements of bees but obviously 
It's a podcast, so you can't see the hands <laughs> unless you're watching us on TikTok. So it's, yeah, they move around. Do you remember those videos when you were at school and they talked about like pollinators and stuff? There was No. Okay, maybe my but, school just had extra resources. Yeah, it, it did. <laughs> my school definitely didn't do that. But I love bees. Thinking about how bees work and they just like sprinkle a little bit of pollen mm. here. Wiggle them I like pollen, the little wiggle you sprinkle, just did. Sprinkle the pollen and then that's it flowers now having a baby yeah it's as you said though you said previously that without the bees we would die essentially mm. and i think people don't realize that without bees and pollinators essentially our food source would die out mm. and i don't think people realize the severity and the urgency yeah. in protecting them so our pollinators are also at risk from several different health threats including parasites viruses and bacterial diseases mm-hmm. which when they're in a hive and there's so many, when we're mass producing products, you're going to have a higher propensity to disease, mm-hmm. which kind of rings true and makes me think of the past three years and how that herd mentality, guys. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything else on that matter. Many of these issues can severely weaken or essentially kill an entire colony. And if you're working as a farmer, like a bee farmer or a honey farmer, sorry, to produce for a company who buys from you and an entire colony is killed out because of disease, mm. the impact is going to be felt. There's no way that that's not going to be felt. It's it's going to be really detrimental to your business. Yeah. So here's some stats for you because I know you love a bit of data. Yeah. How much do you think of our honey in the UK is 100%. imported? <laughs> um, <laughs> not far off. Really? Imported? England? In the UK? Uh Oh, I'd like to think like 40% because we've got so many gardens. Higher. Oh, is it like 80%? Higher. Stop, 95%. 95% (gasps) of our honey is imported. What? And in the US, much, much, much larger place. (laughs) Oh, they import everything though. Yeah. Considering they have the capacity to grow and produce, they import pretty much everything. How much of the honey in the US was produced outside of the US? 95%. 95%. A little bit lower. 80. A little bit lower. 70. A little bit higher. Five. Yeah, <laughs> 75. <laughs> yes, yeah, 75% of honey consumed in the US is produced outside of their nation. That's so weird. And that's a stat from 2018, so that is four years ago. But still, I don't imagine that that will have changed much in the past four years. This sounds really bizarre. <laughs> Do I even want to say this? But like, having foreign honey just feels a bit weird. Like, yeah. We have so many amazing plants and I imagine different honey from different countries tastes different because of our different climate flora. Yeah. And climate, yeah. So some people's honey would be sweeter because their flowers are different and whatever. But yeah, you just think that we would use all the beautiful flowers that we have here that are local to us, that we would use that honey. Yeah. You would think, wouldn't you? But no, alas, we don't. It feels very Brexit. Like, <laughs> yeah. Let's use our honey. <laughs> yeah, use our honey. Um, it's definitely not that. And let's just talk quickly about the carbon emissions because, you know, mm. I like to bring a little oh, bit importing. of that in. Yeah. This is, again, a stat from farm to table in the US. In order to get one kilo of honey from a factory from farm to table in the US, up to 1.06 kilograms of carbon which is almost equal measure. If anything, there's more carbon emitted than you actually get of product. That's crazy. Yeah. But the US is so big. Just use your own honey. Yeah. 
You would think this, but it's never the case. Ugh. Yeah. So anyway, let's move on because this is quite a lengthy interview with Emma Buckley, who is the founder of Buckley's Bees. Her father founded it and together they have over 65 years of beekeeping experience. I really wanted to include a lot of this chat because Mm. I think it was super relevant and really interesting to speak to an expert in this field rather than me just blabbering on. Um, So let's get into this interview with the lovely Emma. So Emma, thank you so much for joining me. This is a really, I think, different conversation for us on the podcast, but also something that's so, so interesting. And I think As I said to you before we started recording, I feel like my inner science lover is coming out, which is good. So something that we really wanted to discuss is the effect of mass-produced honey on the environment. Is this something that really we should stop buying from like like store-bought honey altogether, even though it's less dangerous than sugar? So I think actually one of the bigger issues with shop-bought honey is actually where is it coming from? So if you look on your label, if you go into any supermarket pick up a jar of honey look at the label now quite often that label will say a blend of or packaged in non-eu countries produced from a mix of countries and that's what's i think a key point to start with is that honey in supermarkets can be blended so they go out onto the spot market they buy massive loads of honey and they then bring it to their factory or wherever their processing plant is they then mix it all together and within that you have to heat honey to get it to mix so in the heating process you are then also killing any good bacteria or any of the nice natural properties that are in there which one of the reasons why some people may take honey they'll go so essentially you're kind of left with this blended pot of sugar syrup that's left because there's not that much good stuff left in there and then it's also blended from different countries so you're getting flora which you're not necessarily exposed to in a product that you're taking so I think that's a major point to start with is that just because you're picking up a jar of honey it doesn't mean that that honey's come from one place unless it's stated now something that's really great with local buy local support local is that you are more than likely buying honey that is from one beekeeper's apiary now they may have a few apiaries and we say an apiary is a place where bees are kept a bit like an aviary for chickens or birds so a beekeeper may have a few apiaries as we do so we have our own honey and we have our clients honey our clients honey is their honey and it's their bees honey whereas our own honey is our honey and that's what we may sell. Um, now, we're not honey producers, we're not commercial honey farmers, we're very different and I'm sure we'll explain what we do in a moment. But uh, honey-wise, I can tell you that our honey comes straight from our bees, from their apiary. Some of them is just down the road, some of them's on site with me here. And it goes straight into the extractor, it's then filtered once and goes straight to the jar. You get a pure product, no heating, straight from the bees and that's what you want you want to get that local honey from that local producer that you know you're getting a pure product from there is a big issue at the moment with honey labeling and there's a lot of petitions going around trying to get the government on board to get honey labeled correctly because producers like ourselves that are producing a natural product are being bombarded out of the market by big companies buying in mass-produced honey from all over the world blending it all together and slapping the word pure honey on it well you know it's a little bit different it's not a pure product so that's a constant battle that we as beekeepers and local beekeepers have to deal with 
So that I don't know if that actually answered the question, but I think I just bombarded you with a lot. Oh, it's so fascinating. Obviously, our audience can't see, but I'm sitting here like beaming from ear to ear because it is just so fascinating. It's something that I think we haven't thought about. And obviously, with, with regards to labelling, we know that there's been a lot of disparity with food labelling and things like that over the years and the traffic light system and how you label where something's from and all these different things. And you think about the kind of carbon footprint behind your food. And I guess it goes as far as you can drill right down into specific product areas as well. And we have to talk about that because there's a carbon side about things when it comes to the environment. But then there's also the ethics side of it. And I think the ethics when it comes to how our produce is made or created is something that we kind of often put to the back of our minds and we forget. So in a nutshell, (laughs) is farming honey from bees actually ethical? Does it harm them at all? There seems to be a lot of debate about this. So that's why I wanted to broach the subject with you. Yeah. So honeybees will naturally produce honey. They're meant to produce honey. They're not squeezed. They're not milked. They're not whatever other, you know, sayings that we hear. I just choke on my coffee, by the way. They're not milked. (laughs) But some people do think that, you know, we go around and make the bees produce honey. Like, no, naturally, they are producing honey to put up as much food sources as possible to get themselves through winter. Now, honeybees don't know when to stop. So they essentially work themselves to death. That's why they're called worker bees. They last about six weeks in summertime. And that's because they work so hard to get honey. So each individual bee will go out to the flowers. Now, obviously, the weather is a massive issue in that. And that's where climate change is a massive talking point as well. But on a a generally a normal or whatever normal is these days, but a normal season, the, the sun's out in summer, the flowers are secreting nectar and producing pollen. Bees go out, collect the nectar. They then bring it back and produce honey from it. And what they do is they literally put up as much honey as they can to make sure through the winter months, because we've got no flowers out, we've got no nectar, we've got no pollen coming in. Winter's very cold, very wet here in the UK, and they need their food. That's essentially what honey is. So what beekeepers do and what ethical beekeepers do, like ourselves, we will leave the bees with enough honey to get through winter. So we will only take what we call an excess. So if the bees haven't produced enough honey, we won't take any. Some years we don't get any honey and that's absolutely fine because the bees come first. Some years we have to absolutely substitute feed the bees because the climate's not been right. They've not been able to produce enough honey themselves. So the only way to get them through winter is to feed them. So we actually feed them. It's a bit like honey, but it's had a few things taken away just so that it's got just pure vitamins and minerals in. And then also there's a fondant feed that you can feed them if it's very cold because the bees are quite, they don't move as much when it's very cold. So they won't take a liquid feed, which is like a bit like uh, royal icing on a wedding cake, white icing. It's a bit like that. The point you're trying to get across there is that there's commercial beekeepers. Now I'm not sitting here saying that they don't ethically look after their bees. I'm sure there's commercial beekeepers out there that do look after the bees, you know, bee farmers, the welfare of the bees come first. But one of the main foresights of that industry is the bees are there for honey. Whereas local beekeepers, quite often, and also like ourselves, the bees come first. The honey is an excess. If we get some honey, that's great. If we don't, that's okay. We're doing it because we love what we do. We love the bees and we know how important they are to our ecosystem. And I'm not saying that commercial farmers don't understand that either. It's just different. 
And it was actually, interestingly, one reason why I started Book These Bees was because I was traveling out in New Zealand and out there they do a lot, like big scale honey production out there. You might have all heard of Manuka honey. That's where it all started, which is actually from the plant of the tea tree. We don't have tea tree plants out here, so is it as beneficial to us over here? I don't know. So I was actually traveling around New Zealand and I saw how they were beekeeping out there and they essentially had beehives stacked on top of each other and they looked like filing cabinets and they actually called them filing cabinets out there. And I was really shocked because I'd grown up with bees here at home with my dad. He's been doing it for over 60 years. The bees are part of our little small holding. Every bee counts with us. Every bee matters. And it was very different out there. And I didn't necessarily like that, what I'd seen. I knew the bees were very important. And that's why I set up Buckley's Bees. That first started my thoughts of the business was actually being out there and seeing how it was done out there. It's phenomenal. I've used Manuka honey, but I didn't realise that we didn't have that plant here. I think there is a guy in Kent or somewhere now that's either growing it or trying to grow it, but it's not native. And this is something that I'm saying to people as well when they talk to me about, oh, we planted wildflowers and we're doing this. That's really wonderful. Like We need more habitats. We need more wildflowers. We need more trees. However, where are you getting those seeds from? Oh, well, I bought them online. They came from Germany or whatever. I'm like, okay, so what seeds are they? And they start saying different things. They're not actually native to the UK. So a lot of these flowers then don't bud at the right time. They're not out so that they're not producing nectar when our bees that have evolved to our country need the nectar. We need to join all the dots. It's not just, you know, there's not enough bees, there's not enough flowers, we need to do more. You've got to join all the dots up to make this holistic biodiversity, climate change really push to try and work because it's not just as easy as fixing one thing as I'm sure we all know that. I think what you've said just there has really hit the nail on the head. It's not that simple. We need to do things that are native to our country, essentially. And it's that evolution of how, not just how the plants are growing, but how the bees are operating and how, even with things like animals and you look at like livestock and farming and things like that, and they're overproducing to get more milk, to get more lamb, to get more this. And it's not the natural cycle of things. And I think things do have to work within that natural cycle. I'm glad that you started to speak about your company. So Buckley's Bees. When I was doing some research for this episode, I realized that you guys are doing a national campaign and I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about it. So this national campaign will see the establishment of low density hives being placed throughout the UK. Why is this so important and why are campaigns like this so important? So one of our major aims with the campaign is to bring back, repopulate the UK or whichever country we're working in with the native bee. Now that is key because what's happened over the years is fabulous humans once again have got involved and decided to import honeybees from different countries. Now throughout the world we have different strains of honeybees. Now those bees have evolved to whichever climate they're in. So for example if I take the Italian bee, the Italian honeybee It's very orange, it's very different in colour, and it works differently to how our British black bee, I mean, there's lots of different names that they call it, British black European honeybee. Our British black honeybee is a dark bee, and that's because we have minimal sun here. The Italian, for example, is much lighter in colour, they look more orange, and that's because they get more sun. They get long, hot summers with lots more flora available for a longer period. So they actually also 
produce much bigger brood nests. And when I say brood nests, that's baby bees. So they rear lots of baby bees. They put up lots of honey, lots of baby bees, because they've got much longer to feed those bees, to get them out, to get born, to turn over. The British bee has evolved to our climate here in the UK. And we all know that British weather is very changeable very quickly. So our bee can actually fly at lower temperatures It doesn't put up as much of a brood nest and it's very frugal with its food stores. So it doesn't use as much as quickly as it's needed. So what's happened is humans have gone over, brought over the Italian bee. They've then struggled here in our climate because they're used to long, hot summers. They're tuned in to being very prolific. But then the weather changes. They can't get out. They've got all this brood that they've got to feed. So they consume all their honey very, very quickly. Then there's no food. And if there's no beekeeper to feed them, they die. Now, that's not sustainable. So what we are doing with Buckley's bees is trying to repopulate the native honeybee because we need bee populations to be sustainable on themselves, by themselves. So there's a few things that have happened over the years that have caused bees to not be able to be sustainable, but we're hoping that we can move that. So essentially, beekeepers aren't needed again. And it becomes more of a hobby for beekeepers rather than a need. At the moment, we are the custodian of the bee because they can't sustain themselves by themselves. Another pest, another disease, another issue that's happened with importing bees is we've brought in pests and diseases with those imported bees. Now, those, one in particular, varroa mite, some people may have already heard of that. It's essentially, I kind of describe it a bit like a flea on dogs and cats. However, colony in about three years has got bad varroa mites, it, it will kill the colony out. And that is why we are now struggling. We, we have minimal wild colonies, if any. I'm not even sure if there are any wild colonies left in the UK. And that's because we've imported, and so unfortunately, varroas come in with the bees that we've imported. I didn't realise how dire the situation is. I mean, you hear a lot of different things and you hear that the bee population's in decline, but... I didn't realise how quite severe this is. And I think especially with importing and even just air travel sometimes, like we know we've all been on a flight and there's a bee or a a wasp or some some sort of flying object on the plane and it comes into the country and these things migrate and they move. And they're not natural to this climate. They can be detrimental to local native flora and fauna can't they and I think when you said that I think it really clicked for me I didn't realize that there's no wild colonies left or barely yeah, I mean don't quote me 100% on that I don't know the actual facts but I know that only about 20% of swarms so when a colony swarm mm-hmm. 80% of those swarms don't survive there will be wild colonies out there I'm not sat here saying there's no wild colonies there will be wild colonies out there but how long are they going to live by themselves mm. is the issue that intervention um, yeah yeah Bibber is doing a research project at the moment looking into are there any wild colonies and are they native wild colonies um, but something that's really interesting that we're working here at Buckley's Bees is something called hygienic behaviour. So some of our bees are now showing potentially they are working out how to deal with varroa themselves. Now, that to me is massively important. Like I said, bees need to be sustainable again. And by the bees actually figuring out how to deal with varroa, 
potentially is this evolution in front of our own eyes I really hope so because at the moment we have to treat bees now we try and do everything as natural as possible here at Buckley's Bees we try not to use chemicals and all the bad stuff we don't want to be putting that into our bees we also very very rarely use smoke with our bees people find quite amazing so we will treat if needed with formic acid and that's from ants And that is only if they need it. So we will do something called a mite drop and we'll count on a daily average on how many mites the bees have got. And if it's over a certain amount, then we'll treat. But if it's under that amount and the bees are managing and coping, we want them to try and learn how to deal with those mites themselves, obviously under observation. But then those bees that are showing this hygienic behaviour are then going to our breeding programmes because that's a, a strong genetic trait that we want. So then those bees are bred from and then the cycle goes on. And they're the bees then that we're placing around the UK. Hopefully we can get back to some bigger populations of the native honeybee because we've also got this hybridised bee now because those Italian bees have been imported. They've bred with our native bee stocks. We've now got this hybridised bee. Now in some of those genetic strains, certainly in the F2 of the genetic gene, they can be quite aggressive. And that is something that we categorically do not want. So we've worked and we've bred our bees. Dad's been doing it for over 60 years. We work our bees with no gloves. They're not aggressive. They're pretty docile. That's the way we want it to be and we like it to be. And they're the native bees. The only reason normally why a bee would sting you is if you're threatening their home. So if you're creating vibrations, being very rough around the hive, Or if you're batting, a lot of people will bat a bee away, hit them, you know, wafting. That actually agitates them because it's it's as if you're being aggressive. Yeah, (laughs) Um, I put my hand up there because I know that I've done it. It's really funny. I am terrified of everything, but I I love them all. I'm scared at the same time. You need to come and visit us. I'm allergic to one of them and I don't know which one it is because I've been stung by both. But I didn't know whether it was a wasp or a bee, but I'm allergic to one of them, but not severely. My leg just swells up. Well, yeah. wherever I'm stung, swells up quite large. So As I'm actually s- allergic to bees. This is groundbreaking. Okay. I literally <laughs> haven't told any press about this because I thought it was a good story that I might do like in a year or two's time. I, I actually had an anaphylactic reaction uh, two years after building the business. And I was like, there's no way I can stop now. The bees are more important than my reaction. And I can deal with it. I've had, um, I've actually had immunotherapy now. So I'm year and a half into immunotherapy and I don't react to the bee stings anymore so if you are allergic I would recommend getting immunotherapy it's brilliant it's so funny as you were saying that and you were saying that you don't work with them wearing gloves in my mind I was thinking oh my god imagine if you had a really bad bee allergy (laughs) and there you are you've got it (laughs) yeah the annoying thing is when I had my reaction I don't even know if it was on one of my bees I wasn't even in the apiary I wasn't at home so I don't know whose bee stung me but apparently some of the hybridized bees can have a stronger venom um yeah I mean I'm not making any claims here but that's word on the street is that (laughs) it's very fascinating yeah it is (laughs) Okay, I wanted to talk more about city life and urban beekeeping, which we're kind of seeing a bit of an increase in. A lot of people have got like their rooftop apiaries and things. And you've got the people that think that they're beekeepers or they're aspiring beekeepers, I should say, hobbyists that are just doing things in and around their home space or trying to create like little community gardens and things. But at the same time, I want to understand why it's important to have bees in urban spaces, but also safety aspect just for me and that's my own personal interest there yeah so urban beekeeping is 
an interesting topic. It's great that lots of people are now getting involved and realizing we need more bees. However, we have had to do quite a lot of rescue, bee rescues. And that is because certainly over COVID, people thought, I'm going to get some bees. I'm going to put them on my rooftop, in my garden, you know. Actually, quite a lot of management is involved in having bees, hence why I have a job, hence why I do what I do. Full-time beekeeping, certainly in bee season. You have to be in every colony at least seven days, and that is to minimise swarming. So bees will naturally swarm. I'm sure you've seen all on social media a swarm on a car or in a chimney or on the floor or in a bush. They naturally should swarm. It's how they naturally propagate. So normal circumstances is the queen leaves with half of the bees. What's left behind is some queen cells with new queens in and the other half of the bees in the colony that was originally there. And that is how they naturally propagate. So if the original hive got a disease, for example, and died out, the colony that left, the half with the original queen that left, is still out there strong. Their genetics are still there to then propagate again, continue to breed, and off you go. That's swarming. They're naturally meant to do that. Now, what a lot of beginners and people that aren't beekeepers don't realize is that you can actually manage swarming and you should manage it. And it's a good beekeeping practice. It's one reason why we have beekeepers. Um, you can do certain manipulations in the hive to essentially stop them from swarming or control the swarming. So we want them to swarm. Our native honeybee doesn't swarm as often as a hybridized bee or other bees Italian bees, for example. And that's something that we want to hold on to as well in the genetic traits. But the way we would do that is a beekeeper will see that the colony's put up queen cells. Now you've got eight days until that cell is capped. On day eight, when that cell is capped, if the weather's right and everything's good, the swarm will leave because they know that they've got young queens in the hive, capped in their cells, fed, ready to come out another eight days later. So a beekeeper can actually catch the swarm before it leaves if it's in there every seven days because that cell's capped on day eight. That's part of our managed beekeeping service that we offer is swarm management. And um, so clients haven't got to worry that their bees are going to swarm into the neighbours, wherever, because we're constantly managing the bees and making sure that that's not happening. A good beekeeper that knows what they're doing has got lots of experience doesn't necessarily have to be in seven days. I'm just giving you a, a quick short snap it. And we also would try and encourage people not to be in their bees regularly unless needed because we believe natural bees should be allowed to, you know, have their time and their space to do what they want. But what's happened with urban beekeeping is certainly with COVID happening is that people haven't done the research, they haven't gone on the courses, they haven't got the practical experience. And They've got into a lot of trouble. The bees swarmed. They don't know what to do. The neighbours are calling. They're going wherever. The bees sometimes can become aggressive, and that's because the beekeeper hasn't learned how to manage and handle bees properly. So bees communicate a lot through vibrations. So if you're in the hive and you're banging around, you know, you've got your hive tool and you're dropping it and you've got big gloves on and creating a disturbance, you, know, you wouldn't be very happy if someone came into your house banging around, smashing things, would you? So kind of similar with the bees. I, I don't blame them, but they may become slightly more agitated and aggressive towards the beekeeper. And then that's also a negative. So they find themselves in this mess and 
people like ourselves come out, rescue them. And quite often, quite a few of the colonies that we have actually rescued, we've then assessed. We've let them settle for a couple of weeks. We've gone through them, no gloves, and they're absolutely fine. And that is a classic example of humans not getting involved, but not knowing what they're doing or doing it right. And that's not just urban beekeepers. That also happens, you know, rural locations. People think, oh, I've got a couple of acres of land. I'm going to get some bees. Not do it right and get into a similar situation. Now, urban beekeeping... It's great. The bees can get really great diverse pollens from lots of different plants because there's lots of big parks. For example, London, there's a lot of parks that are fully planted up with all sorts of different great flora and fauna for the bees. But one thing I would say, and I know that at the moment there is a massive thing about overpopulation in certainly London, is too many bees. Now, there is a flip side to that argument. Some people say there's too many honeybees around and we should be looking after the other species of bees, which I do agree with. They're just as important. However, one argument I would say is that other species of bees are slightly different in the way that biological makeup where for example bumblebees their tongues are much longer than honeybees so they will forage different flora they'll forage similar flora to honeybees don't get me wrong but certain crops even just clover red clover for example rarely see honeybees on I have seen honeybees on it before but not in mass production but bumblebees can access that nectar because their tongues are longer whereas honeybees can't, so they will forage a different crop. Honeybees are also very loyal to a crop, so they will leave the hive. They'll go and forage a big crop, normally one sort of crop, and then return to the hive with that crop and then go out again to a different crop. Bumblebees will go from one flower to a different, to another, to another, and spread it around, whereas the honeybee will go out to that loyal crop, forage it all, then come back. That was all super, super interesting. Just on that beekeeping and the urban beekeeping model again, just as a final question, I just want to know, could it be an example of like sustainable agriculture and business, really? Personally, I think my view is sustainable agriculture, I think, will come through the organic route. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important because... If you look at the difference, it, it is different. You've got 50% more insects and birds, small mammals on organic farms already. Now, should we not be learning from that? Now, I'm not sat here, you know, bad-mouthing commercial non-organic farmers. We're a small, a little small beef farm here ourselves. So we try to do stuff as organic as possible. But the thoughts of pesticides, insecticides and Habitat loss is massive at the moment, and we've lost 97% of our wildflower meadows since World War II. That is absolutely shocking. And why on earth have we not done something about that years ago? Why only now are we sat here going, oh, no, we've lost 97% of them? Okay, so what are we going to do? How are we going to put that back? Some reasons why we may have lost some of those habitats is because we need more houses. We're working with Taylor Wimpy at the moment to try and put back what we may be removing or losing and and actually in some of the planning stages in some of the areas around the UK we actually sit with them and go okay green space is great but what in green space is good for our insects our pollinators our small mammals our hedgehogs our birds our bats grass well okay so what's that bringing Uh, not that much if you sit in your lawn and you actually look at your lawn you don't just have grass in there 
most cases you've got clover you've got wild flowers you know dandelions that's a great source of pollen food for the bees and other pollinators early on you see as a weed i do this on my social media all the time i take pictures of thistles or weeds people say weeds i say you see weeds we see bee food and that is something that's really important is to try to get people to realize that we've got beautiful natural flora that our earth, our soils, our, our world has produced for us, for our insects. Why are we not using that? Why are we trying to put in plastic grass and fake lawns? And no, why are you doing that? You're ruining what God, if you're a God believer, God gave us. The world evolved with these habitats for our animals and small mammals and insects. We should be looking there. And that is key you know a lot of our plants and flora evolved to be insect pollinated so if we lose our bees and pollinators we don't just lose them we lose trees we lose our hedgerows we lose blackberries you lose our own food sources walk into the supermarket it's not just the fresh produce you'll lose you will lose your ready meals think about your pasta sauces tomatoes are pollinated by bees and pollinators think about absolutely everything in that supermarket what would you be left with probably some dry products from pasta or something literally it's devastating to think if we were to lose our pollinators and it starts that little ecosystem starts with pollination and that pollination is brought from the bees from pollinators and then in turn if you've got good cross-pollination from your having a big insect population you then get much better fruit you get more fruit on each plant and then you get more seeds so that then feeds your bats and your birds as well as the next generation of that plant. You've got more of those seeds, so there's more food, everything's more available. But we need to do more now. We need to act now. Otherwise, we are going to lose that. And it's devastating. China lost, I think, all of their insect populations and they are now having to hand pollinate crops. That's a really crazy thing to have to think about, you know. <laughs> To think that yeah. the people actually hand pollinating things, because yeah, and it's not as efficient. Jungle, yeah, it's not as efficient. They're still not; they're not getting the same return on that pollination. In farmers planting field beans, as an example, they get I think it's like twenty eight percent more of a crop from having bees. That's if you've got the bees on site. But if you've got a big insect population you're going to get those returns from your crops. So even if you're, you know, you're growing oil seed rape or other crops like that, you get more return on those oils and those seeds from those crops by having more insects. So why are we not all doing more? Because we'll all benefit. Farmers will get more crops. They get more return. They get paid more. We get more food sources. The animals, the environment, the biodiversity is lusher. It's greener. You only have to look at uh, Chernobyl with what happened with the you know, all of that. They've left it to nature. Nature's return. Nature's brought back. It's come back fighting. And there's out animals living there. There's plants everywhere. Like that is living proof that we need nature way more than nature needs us. Totally agree with you. And I think that that is a fantastic place to leave this. So thank you so, so much. That's okay. <laughs> So, thank you so much, Emma. How did you find that? Oh, so interesting. I love honey, first of all. <laughs> um, so, I found that really interesting because 
it's nice to know where your products come from you know, yeah and how things are made so that's really cool i really like going to different countries and buying different honeys so it's interesting hearing about how foreign bees are coming into our country <laughs> it, it does have real brexit vibes doesn't it yeah i'm into it but yeah i thought she was great thank you so much emma for joining that was wicked yeah thank you so let's move on to the sustainably influenced sustainability score <laughs> we really need to get a jingle sorted yeah for that. if there Season are seven. any if there are any um musicians or What's the word? DJs or people that make music, make the music out there, jingle creators. If you want to send us something, please. I just need just a little three seconds of music would be fab. Thanks. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Moving I said on. that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what are we scoring? I'm going to say honey production. Honey production. As opposed to beekeeping, because you can't rate the sustainability of a job. <laughs> mm. Well, you can. You can. can. You can, but not in this instance, because I think we've spoken more about honey production. Yeah. Okay. Or are you going to go? Oof. Honey production. Thing I hate about this game. <laughs> this game. <laughs> that I made up is that there's always... Pros and cons. Yeah. The nuances in everything, because we have beekeeping, sustainable beekeeping, urban beekeeping, like it's so we're thinking about production some people produce in a much ethical way than in a more ethical way than others i don't know i don't know let me just skip you know, let me think um i think maybe if we think about it in terms of buckley's bees maybe okay because that was a huge part of this episode fine so i think maybe if we talk about it with respect to how they produce because i think that that opened my eyes to a hell of a lot yeah well top score that was like a nine or a ten no yeah I think what they're doing. I never give anyone a 10, so I'll give a 9. Yeah, we'll give a 9. Also, props to Emma for telling me her secret, essentially, <laughs> that she is allergic to bees and has been stung, which is just... Mind-blowing. I'm just like, well done. Wow. Just shows she's really good at her job. Yeah. Because imagine... In all the years you're doing something. Yeah, being stung once. Yeah. Fantastic. So we will leave it there for this week. So thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye. Sustainably Influenced is hosted by Bianca Foley and me, Charlotte Williams. This season was produced by Content is Queen, sound edited by Amber Miller. And a big thanks to our researcher, Anna Stoney. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.